0: You moms here today have probably told the birth story of your kids multiple times. The road to delivery can have many twists and turns. We find the details compelling and often surprising. Maybe your story is like Mary Gorgons, who delivered her fifth child in just 120 seconds. That's the fastest on record. And I was thinking, ladies, if you're looking for a world record to achieve toward, you know, 119 seconds is the bar for you. Or maybe for your family, it was more like Joanna Kristinek. She had to endure 75 days of labor, laying tilted 30 degrees backwards, 24 hours a day, to keep her twins from delivering too early. The Bible describes salvation as being delivered, being born again. Jesus Christ said, you must be born again if you want to escape death and receive the forgiveness of your sins. The Apostle Paul, writing to his friend Titus, wrote this, God, our Savior, saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The amazing process of being born again is the most important thing that could possibly happen to you. Now, the gospel is the same in every age and in every place. God reveals himself. Man is given a choice as to whether they will believe him and trust in him. And if they will, then God gives them his righteousness. But the road to redemption is going to be particular to each individual. Here's what I mean. Some of you were saved very young. Some of you were saved very old. Some were ignorant of spiritual things at the moment of their conversion. Others were actively in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ and had hated him in their previous life. Some people had a single event that made them realize they were sinners in need of a savior. Others can identify decades of plain but persistent attempts on the part of God to rescue them as day after day he knocked on the door of their hearts. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we have a wonderful new birth story. As we examine it, we should not only be amazed at the power of God and the grace of God and the uh, limitless compassion of God, but we also get a chance to see how he involves those of us who already know him in that process. And for any of you who may not yet be born again, you will hopefully see a reflection of yourself in one of these characters, see the state of your heart, your need for forgiveness, the danger that you're in, spiritually speaking, and that salvation is being held out to you by a God who knows you and loves you and can't wait to bring you into his household. Our story opens in a house In the ancient kingdom kingdom of Aram, we would call it Syria today. It's more than 100 miles to the north of the city of Samaria, which was the Israeli capital at the time. Verse 1, Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a man important to his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a valiant warrior, but he had a skin disease. Naaman is our main character this morning. He's the one who will be saved at the end of the story. At the start, we learned quite a bit about him. He was a man of great power, great position, great ability. He was the commander-in-chief of the mighty Aramean army. He hadn't cheated or bribed or, or backstabbed his way into that spot. He earned it through valor and victory and discipline. We find that he was a man respected and revered, both by his king and we'll see by his own servants. But we learn two other very important things about him. First, we see that it was by God's grace that he had won the battles he had won. Listen, if you're not a Christian, even if you believe in a God, you may not realize just how involved he is in not only the world generally, but specifically in your life. That's something the Bible explains in great detail. The Bible explains that God is in charge of this world. He's in charge of the flow of history. He has a will and it will be done. Now, on top of that, he is directly involved in your life, not just if you're a Christian, but in your life, no matter who you are. It's his breath in your lungs. You may think that you are the commander in chief of your life, but God's word says through the Lord's mercy, you are not consumed. If you woke up this morning, that's a gift from almighty God who created you in your mother's womb and loves you. The most significant thing we learn about Naaman in this verse is the very last thing. He had a skin disease. We would call him a leper. He was in big trouble. In the Bible, leprosy is not, of, not only a real disease that was uh, horrible and painful and fatal, but it also serves for us as a picture of our sinful condition before a perfect and holy God. Listen, God in heaven, the creator of all things, he is absolutely perfect, absolutely right, absolutely holy. In him, there's no darkness at all. In him, there's no mistake at all. In him, he's never done anything wrong on any level. And when he looks down at us, we're not like that even a little bit. You see, leprosy was a rotting decay. It would start small and slowly grow, ultimately killing the victim. If you were a leper, you could try to cover it up with cloth or clothes or, or all sorts of things, but that wouldn't do any good. In fact, it would only pollute and defile anything that touched it. Leprosy as an illness isolated a person. It deadened their senses. There was no cure anywhere on earth. Nothing could be done to clean yourself or rid yourself of the stain or effects of this terrible affliction. And that's exactly the spiritual condition of every single human being from heaven's perspective. You see, because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, every single one of us, when we were born, inherited a sin nature. If you feel like that's fair, don't worry, you would have also sinned in the garden. But even set that aside, we have a sin nature, the Bible explains that, but set that aside for a moment. From the moment that you're born, you start committing individual acts of sin and rebellion against a holy God. Throughout life, you commit individual acts of sin. Sin simply means missing the mark. The mark is perfection, And we can't hit perfection with every thought, word, and deed for every single moment of our our entire lives. It's impossible. No one has ever done that except for Jesus Christ, who is God who became man, lived a sinless, perfect life so that he could deal with the problem of our sin. And so throughout life, we commit individual acts of sin as people. Some are worse and some are not so bad in the eyes of other people. That's to be sure. But no matter whether it's a white lie or a serial killing, All of those things are putrid and criminal in comparison to a perfect and holy God who demands perfection. When he sees our imperfection, our rebellion, our refusal to do what is right in every thought, word, and deed, here's his assessment given to us in the Bible. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, no spot is clear. The whole thing is festering with our sin. That's from the books of Isaiah and Psalms. We're told in the book of 1 Kings that sin is a plague in our hearts, just like leprosy. You can rise through the ranks of men. You can become a great champion. You can be secure in your wealth, and your position, and your legacy. But what is going to cure you of the wrongs that you have done? That's an illness that has no cure in this world. If you're not a Christian, you're naming today. And you're in a world of trouble. You're living on borrowed time and you have a terminal spiritual illness. But here's the very good news. Naaman was not only important to his king and to his country and to his fellow soldiers, he was also very important to the God of the Bible, the one true God. And this God was about to do something incredible for this man who didn't even know who he was. Verse two, Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master were the prophet we uh, were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. This girl, I wish we knew her name, but we don't. She's one of the most remarkable people in all the Old Testament. Look at her heart. Look at the kind of attitude and perspective she had. She had been living her life normally when suddenly one day she was stolen. Maybe her family was killed in one of these raids. We don't know. And she became a slave in the house of the very man who led those godless soldiers who had kidnapped her and stolen her future from her. But despite the suffering she had endured, despite the fact that the entire trajectory of her life was now completely different, she did not turn her back on God. In fact, her hope in God was alive and well. And not only for herself, she also knew that the God of Israel would be kind and compassionate even to the commander of Aram. Her heart was so full of confidence and love for God that she could look at the man who was responsible for her kidnapping and enslavement and say, you know what, God would save this man if he would go and speak to the prophet. Do we present God that way to the world around us as Christians, as if he is really willing to receive anyone who will come to him? He is, he's willing to receive anyone who will come to him. Doesn't matter what they've done, where they're from, who they are he'll receive anyone. Do we present God as if he is both very mindful of our present sufferings, but also has plans and purposes that are far greater than our right now circumstances? That is who God is. God wasn't hard-hearted toward the suffering of this little girl, but he also has a long plan, a long plan that he's involving all of his people in to accomplish his purposes all over the world for thousands of years. And so, yes, the Lord Jesus, if you're a Christian here today, he cares about your present sufferings and your present struggles. He's a man who is called the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And he says, come and cast your cares upon me because I care for you. And so Jesus never comes along to us and says, I don't really care that you're having a hard time. I don't care that you're suffering. He does care. At the same time, he also is not only about our present right now sufferings. He also is about the long-term work that he is accomplishing, both in your life and through your life to the people and community around you in which he has placed you. This girl is a reminder to us who are born again that we are guaranteed trouble in this world, but at the same time, God works all things together for good in us and through us because we're called according to his purposes. He's the God who loves his enemies and does all he can to save them. And so we have hope and confidence even in defeat or suffering. Now, this girl had every right to hate Naaman, especially in the Old Testament, what we would call dispensation. Before the church age, she had every right to hate Naaman and pray that he would suffer and die for what he had done against one of God's precious daughters. We see some of these psalms in the Old Testament. They're called imprecatory psalms. Where the psalmist, it shocks us from our perspectives, where the psalmist says, Lord, the enemies of yours, the enemy of your people, break their teeth, bring them down to the grave, crush them. There's a later period in the book of 2 Kings where the Assyrian army comes and mocks God and is coming against the people of Judah. And the priests and the king, they get together and they say, God, deliver us. Please help us. And the Lord God sends his angel and he kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And so this little girl would have been right and and had every right to hate Naaman and to pray that he would die for the evil things that he had done. But instead, her heart was full of the kind of compassion that God has for you and for me. And not only was it full of empathy and compassion, but she also had real practical insight for the lost and dying people around her. This is important. She didn't just say, oh, I just wish things weren't so bad for you. James talks to us about this as Christians. He says, you know, when things are going on in people's lives, don't just say, well, be warmed and filled. I just hope that would all work out for you. Look what she does. She does the much more valuable thing. She says, you know what? Not only do I have compassion for your suffering, Naaman, I wish that Naaman would go to this man in this place so that this would happen, that you would live and not die. She gave him almost a mathematical formula where he could find deliverance from his affliction. If you're a Christian, you know the way to salvation, you know the way to eternal life, you have the directions which lead to heaven. And we are to go through life delivering that saving message, not just coddling people or generically consoling them or holding back from speaking the truth to them, but giving the actual prescription for eternal life because we have it. That it is found in one place and in one person, Christ Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a Roman cross, was buried and raised to life the third day, and now offers freely the forgiveness of sins. The prescription is that if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A real practical insight for people who are in need. Now, Naaman was mighty, but he was also desperate. He was a dead man walking unless he found some healing, some cure for his incurable disease. No doubt he had gone to many physicians and shamans and potion makers in an effort to escape his fate. All of them had failed miserably as his lesion spread ever further over his body. But you know, he had heard, like everyone else in that region at that time, he had heard whispers. He had heard things that sometimes weird things happen in the land of Israel that can't be explained. That they've got a God over there that does some things that we've never heard of before. He would have heard whispers of the impossible shared in the barracks after scuffles with the Israeli army. And now there's this little Hebrew girl in his house saying, I know how you can be totally saved from your sickness right now, today. If you just go over there, that would all be taken care of. This is an amazing thing. Verse four, so Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. Now, listen, this must have been a hard meeting to schedule, I think. This would have been a, a, a you know, if you've ever had to go into your boss and ask for something, this is, this is a big one. To go in and ask your king for a time off so that you could go to the capital of the enemy nation next door, have their holy man heal you of a disease everyone knew couldn't be healed. And why are you doing that? Well, because a little slave girl told me I should do it. Uh, this, it shows just how desperate Naaman really was. He realized that he was dealing with life and death here. And so he was willing to do whatever was necessary. If you're not a Christian here today, you need to realize your spiritual condition because you're Naaman. You may not be a leper on your skin, but you're a leper in your heart and you've got a real problem. If Naaman had thought it's just a rash, I'll go away, I'll rub some aloe on there, it's no big deal. Then he wouldn't have cared about what this little girl had said. But he knew this wasn't just a scab. He knew he was doomed. There wasn't anything he could do about it, but he knew he was in real trouble. Friends, if you've not been born again, you are doomed. The Bible explains it very clearly. There's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. The Bible says you are rushing toward an eternity in hell. Not because God wants to send you there, he doesn't. Hell wasn't created for human beings. It was created for the devil and his angels. God doesn't want any person to go there. He's done all that he can to save every single person from going there. But if you will not accept his offer to be saved from hell, then he will allow you your free choice to go there. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But you have to first realize your need, that you are lost and guilty and hopeless, but for God's intervention and salvation. Verse 5 says, Therefore the king of Aram said, Go! Go! I'll send a letter with you to the king of Israel. So he went and he took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold and 10 sets of clothing. He brought the letter to the king of Israel and it read, when this letter comes to you, note that I've sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease. In today's valuation, this is more than $4 million. Uh, quite, Quite a check was written to him. Now, Naaman and the king of Aram assumed that this sort of healing would require payment. Of course, Naaman was worth every penny to Aram, and so he sent with quite a bounty, but in reality, it was worthless. It was all worthless. Every last ounce of these metals. It couldn't do anything for his leprosy. Money couldn't solve his problem. Money couldn't buy a miracle. What's happening here is that they are operating with human intuition and human attitudes. They're trying to solve this, this life and death problem on a human level, and they simply can't. And you notice they really hadn't listened carefully to what the young girl from Samaria had said. She didn't say anything about the king of Israel. She didn't say anything about a price to be paid. For any non-believer listening right now, you may have to admit that you have presuppositions about God or about Jesus or about the Bible or about Christianity that aren't part of Christianity at all, that aren't in the Bible at all. It's a lot of opinions and thoughts and criticisms out there about Uh, God and about Christianity and about the church and about teachings of the Bible? Have you ever looked in the Bible yourself to see if any of those things are actually true? Because the Bible reveals a perfect God who has loved you to the ends of the earth, who loves you so much he did not spare his own son so that you could not, not so that you could be saved, so that you could have the opportunity to be saved. He allowed his son to die so that you could have the choice whether you would spit upon that sacrifice, or accept it. This is an amazing thing. Now, we're going to find that Naaman has a bunch of presuppositions about God and about, you know, the God of Israel specifically. But for Christians here today, it's so important that we accurately explain the word of God to people. It really makes a big difference. Now, the little girl she had, they weren't listening quite carefully enough, but she had explained accurately Now, we have the whole revealed word of God. That little girl didn't have a copy of the scriptures with her. We have the whole revealed word of God. God has gone to great lengths so that you and I can have his completed, inspired word. And it's really important that we rightly divide the word of truth, the Bible says, that we accurately explain who God really is, what he really has done, what he really has said, what he really asks of us, and what his nature is. Because when we don't accurately give those things to people based on the unchangeable truth of Scripture, all sorts of problems arise. You end, we end up not properly explaining to people those things that they really need. And so we want to be sure that we are accurate when we explain the word of God. This is part of the reason why here at Calvary, it's so important to us that we center our church life around the systematic teaching of the word of God, because we need to know what God has said so that we can accurately deliver it to people. Verse seven says, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he asked, am I God killing and giving life? that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease, recognize that he is only picking a fight with me. The king of Israel, we're not sure which one it was. It doesn't matter. They were all trash in the northern kingdom, every single one of them. And that's on the authority of the word of God. Every single one of them was an abject rebel against the God and against his prophets and against the scripture. We are not sure which one of these kings it was. It's one of two or three, but... Ethnically, he was one of God's people, right? He was one of the tribes of Israel, descendant of Abraham, but he was no believer. It didn't matter what it said on his business card or on his birth certificate. He was a pagan idolater just like Naaman. And we see here just how empty he was. One commentator points out he didn't even believe the other gods he worshiped would help him in this situation, worshiping all these other perverse gods, and he doesn't even think that they will step in. He doesn't go to ask them any help or any opinion. He just, oh, well, we're done here. He's empty. He's an empty man. We also see the hardness of his heart because he knew who Elisha was, and he knew what Elisha was capable of. In fact, Elisha, the prophet, had raised a dead person back to life not long before this passage, and he had performed all of these different miracles. But We're told that these kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, they clung to their sin, the Bible said. And because of it, when this king had an opportunity to see the astonishing work of God, and more than that, to even be a part of it, he missed it. It's true, he couldn't give life, but he should have known the God who can. He had the testimony of the law of Moses, he had the testimony of the prophets, he had the testimony of the house of David and the history of God's people. And so he should have known better, but he refused to turn to the Lord. If you're a Christian, don't become like the King of Israel even a little bit, so wrapped up in wealth and pleasure and politics and selfishness that you slowly just start becoming like the unbelieving world around you. That's what had happened to the people in the Northern Kingdom of Israel. They were supposed to be set apart. They were supposed to be different. They were supposed to be sanctified for God's purposes. And instead they just became like all of the nations around them. We're meant to be in the world, but not of it. We're meant to be the light of the world, pointing others to life. The king completely failed in his purpose. Verse eight, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have them come to me. And he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha took initiative, not for his own glory, not for his own well-being, but for the glory of God and for the sake of a suffering leper. He welcomed the chance to work in this man's life by God's power. The stakes were high, yes, the problem was difficult, impossible from the human perspective. But Elisha wasn't ruffled, he was full of faith and confidence in his Lord. Verse 10, then Elisha sent him a messenger who said, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your skin will be restored and you'll be clean. But Naaman got angry and left saying, I was telling myself he will surely come out and he'll stand and he'll call on the name of the Lord, his God, and he'll wave his hand over the place and cure the skin disease. Aren't Abna and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and left in a rage. seemed pretty disrespectful that Elisha did this. Was it? Was he just turning the screws on one of Israel's chief enemies? No. What we're seeing here is that this isn't really a skin issue as much as it is a heart issue. Why is Naaman there? Naaman's there because he wants his skin healed. But why had God drawn Naaman there? He wanted to change his whole life, his whole future, his whole eternity. He wanted to heal him from the inside out, not just heal his skin, heal his heart, heal his mind, heal his future. He wanted to do all of that for Naaman. But there was a barrier. It wasn't just just a molecular disease barrier. There was a barrier in his heart. This man, for all that he accomplished, was a man full of pride. And so we find that it's Naaman's heart that needs healing more than his skin. Of course, to Naaman, the most important thing was his terminal illness. But God is going to show him that there's something much greater going on, something on a very deep level. God didn't want to simply clear the sores off his skin. He wanted to renew Naaman's heart and transform his life and change his mind and rescue him from the kingdom of darkness forever and ever. And that's what God wants to do in the life of every single person, in your life, my life, everyone around us. This is the work God wants to do. Redeem, redeem the the past, the present, and the future. Give us everlasting life, both for this life and for eternity. That rivers of living water would be flowing through us as the Lord conforms us into his image and brings fruit out of our lives. This is the work that God wants to do. Now, the Lord is mindful and does care about our physical suffering, our sorrows and our difficulties in this life. But he also wants to save every part of us, transforming us from the inside out. Naaman was a great man, a powerful man. He commanded and it was done. Naaman clearly had the resources he needed to buy what he wanted. But salvation is not for sale. It can only be received as a gift by someone who has a humble, surrendered heart. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You can't receive salvation if your heart is full of pride. You just can't. Because God resists the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. When God reaches out to a person, he says to them, follow me. And to follow God means that we have to make a choice to believe him, to trust him, and to turn away from our previous path of life where we were commander-in-chief, or at least where we thought we were, and to turn away from our sin and from our wickedness and instead allow God to be the master of our lives and lead us where he wants to lead us. Naaman, in this moment, was not ready to submit. He had come with his own terms in mind, right? He thought, well, this guy should come out and he should show me a certain amount of respect and preference and and, and he should do religious things that look good and he should perform a spectacle that's worthy of a man as important as me. He should probably have some kind of weird hat on while he does it. This is what I think needs to happen. It's interesting, Naaman was dying, but he wanted to be in charge of the treatment. You see, he was ready to be rid of his leprosy but he wasn't ready to be rid of his pride. And as a result, he flew into a rage and almost missed his chance to live and not die. If you're not a Christian here, ask yourself, I'm asking you, what is holding you back from becoming a Christian today? Is it that you won't believe because you think it's a silly thing to believe in a God you can't see? It's evidence of God all around you. Look at the creation around you, the meticulous fine-tuning. Look at the laws of nature. Look at everything we know about the world around us. Show me a symphony that wrote itself. Show me a painting that painted itself. And then tell me that there's no God that created the DNA that is full of encyclopedias worth of information that makes you who you are. Is it that you won't believe? Is it that you won't surrender because you want to be in charge of your life? Listen, you're not in charge of your life. The Bible explains there's nothing that you can do to add one day to your life. And the Bible explains that in actuality, you may think that you are in charge of your life. But if you're not a Christian, you are actually held captive by the devil to do his will. And that you are enslaved to your sin. Is it because you're worried about what others might think? That's not worth dying for. Consider what would have happened to Naaman if he just went home and the story ended at verse 12. What a tragedy it would have been. Thankfully, it didn't. Look at verse 13. But Naaman's servants approached and said to him, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he only tells you, wash and be clean? Naaman must have been a good man, at least most of the time. His servants really loved him. In the Hebrew, I'm told they're actually calling him, hey, my father. We see the servant girl, she had affection for him. He must have been a good man. On the other hand, he was a proud man, deeply proud, a man with a temper. Listen, God knew everything about Naaman. He didn't demand that Naaman clean himself or make himself perfect before he could be saved. But to be healed, to be saved, it meant that Naaman would have to surrender to God's way. It wasn't complicated, but that doesn't mean it was easy for him to conquer himself. He had gone out his whole life conquering people, conquering kingdoms and conquering armies, but now he was going to have to lay down his arms and bow his knee to the king of heaven, but that was his only hope, to escape death. Verse 14, so Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. How can you go into a dirty river seven times and come out clean? The Jordan was known for being a brown, muddy mess, but God accomplishes the impossible. Each time Naaman went in and dunked under, he would have come out, look at himself, and saw no change, probably as frustration mounted. But he made the choice to trust the God of Elisha. After all, his other gods had never done a thing for him. Now he believed the word he had been told and he obeyed the command he had been given not on his own terms but on God's terms it must have been a silly sight if you were fishing on the river that day to see this this company of serious soldiers and chariots and there's mules with like piles of gold on them and there's the general and all of his regalia and he's taking off his armor and he's taking off his stuff and he's going into the river and he just keeps going back and forth and you're probably thinking, I probably shouldn't stay around too long because something's weird is happening right now. (laughs) And so I'm sure it was silly, but what may have seemed silly to some spectator was actually the transformation of a life, the saving of a man from death and from hell. And finally, that seventh time, Naaman came up out of the water and was brand new inside and out. Verse 15, then Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God, stood before him, and declared, I know there's no God in the whole world except in Israel. Therefore, please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives in whose presence I stand, I will not accept it. Naaman urged him to accept it, but he refused. And so we see that more than his skin was transformed. We see immediately the marks of salvation in the heart and the words and the actions of Naaman. First of all, he was thankful. He didn't go home. He went, scholars estimate it would have been 25 miles from Samaria to the Jordan. And he would have taken first a 100 mile trip up. Then he would have gone 25 miles from Elisha's house to the Jordan, then 25 miles back just so he could thank Elisha for what had happened. Second, we see that his heart was overflowing with worship and testimony about God. He went in the water as a pagan leper. He came out as a righteous monotheist. He wanted people to know he wasn't ashamed of what we would call the gospel. He says, there's one God. Let me talk to you about him. And Elisha's like, yeah, I know. (laughs) I stand in his presence too. Third, Naaman's heart was full of generosity. He wasn't trying to bribe anyone here or pay for anything. What did he say? He said, please accept this gift. He wanted to offer freely a gift. It wasn't out of obligation, it wasn't out of coercion, it was out of a thankful heart. Fourth, his newfound humility remained. The last time Elisha refused him, he was really upset. This time when Elisha refused him, he was content to be refused. No flying into a rage this time. Why did Elisha refuse this gift? Isn't a workman worthy of his wage? Yes, that's true. And a heart transformed by God will be a heart full of generosity toward the Lord's work. But God, working through Elisha, wants this to be perfectly clear to Naaman and to us. Salvation is free. It is the free gift of God. You do not buy it. You do not earn it. you're, You're not worth it. It is the free gift of God. You are saved by grace through faith, not of works, not of money, not of worthiness, lest any man should boast. Verse 17, Naaman responded, if not, please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering or a sacrifice to any other God but the Lord. In these closing verses, many commentators criticize Naaman for being superstitious, but we need not criticize this guy. He knew nothing about the regulations concerning the worship of the Lord, not yet anyway. He had no scriptures. He'd never been to synagogue. Instead, we see a man who wanted to do whatever he could to worship God faithfully. His life was in Syria. And so he wanted to, in a sense, take a temple with him. Luckily, in the New Testament, this is what we get to do. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit if you've been born again. And anywhere you go, you go as the temple of the Lord. And we see here, what did Naaman do? Even though he maybe didn't understand all the rules and the regulations of the law of Moses, he's making a plan to worship God, to honor God. He didn't consider his relationship with Jehovah as over after this transaction. He knew this was just the beginning. And he was thinking about how this was gonna impact every day for the rest of his life. Yes, he'd have a lot to learn, but he was ready to worship and ready to give and ready to acknowledge publicly that there is one true God. Verse 18, however, in a particular matter, may the Lord pardon your servant, When my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Ramon to bow and worship while he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow in the temple of Ramon, when I bow in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And so Elisha said to him, Go in peace. Damon is thinking about how his life would have to change now that he was a servant of the one true God. He realized it wouldn't always be easy that people would notice the things he was doing, how that might reflect poorly on his new faith, how his faith in God should change the way that he acts and behaves and lives. Pretty mature guy for being saved for about five minutes. Well, that's not true. He drove 25 miles, few hours. Pretty Amazing. From our vantage point, some might call this compromise, but step back for a moment, what do we see? We see a man whose heart is enthralled with God. We see a man completely changed, wanting so much to honor God in every thought, every word, every action, trying to figure out how his duties in his job are going to going to coalesce with his faith and how clearly his faith is the dominant force in his life. And he realizes, hey, what's most important to me is that I go forward from this moment cleaned and pardoned before this God who's done such a great thing for me. And we see Elisha speak graciously to him. He doesn't rebuke him. Put yourself in this story. If you were going to be cast as one of these characters based on what's going on in your heart and life and mind, who would it be? If you're not born again, you can choose between Naaman and the king of Israel. They both found themselves in trouble, but the king of Israel held on to his resentment toward God. He clung to his sin. He refused to believe. Naaman, on the other hand, surrendered and was changed forever. His life was saved. His heart was saved. He suddenly had a value no battlefield victory could give him. He was loved by the one true God. And after years of life and leprosy, he took hold of the gift of salvation that God extended to him. If you're not a Christian, God wants to redeem you. He loves you. He knows you. He sent Jesus Christ to die so that you could have the penalty for your sins paid. That's what Jesus was doing. Dying the death you deserve so that you could have life. In Hosea chapter seven, God mourns over those who rebel against him and flee from him. He says, I want to redeem you in that passage. Are you willing to let him? God loves you as much as he loved Naaman or the servant girl or even his own son because God so loves the world and that includes you that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe on him will not perish but have everlasting life. You can call out to him right now. The Bible says, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. You bring nothing to the table except for yourself and your willingness to receive that free gift. For those of us who are Christians here today, choose between the servant girl and Elisha. One's not better than the other. It's really just a matter of circumstances. Whether you find yourself in a time of trouble like she did or a time of peace like Elisha was, God wants to use you one way or another. And how do we see him using these servants of his? It's kind of interesting. One of those servants, he brought to Naaman, the servant girl. One of those servants, he, he brought Naaman to him, right? And so God explains that he has scattered us into the world to be light of the world and the salt of the earth. And he has given you his life and he has given you the life that you have. And he's either going to bring you into the path of people or people into your path, And then you are there to trust in God and explain just how great God is to the people around you and and to share the word with them. We get so caught up in like, well, I need to do the following 10 things for God in order to be a good Christian. That's not how God's work is presented in the Bible. God's work as presented in the Bible is we Allow our hearts to be enthralled with God, in love with God, filled with the Holy Spirit. That we allow God to lead us into the works He has prepared beforehand. Not that we take the clipboard out of God's hand and say, I've got some ideas that I'd like to run by you. But say, Lord, here I am, send me. Or bring people to me. Lord, I want to serve you. I want to do your work. I want to faithfully fulfill my purpose, which is your purpose. And allow the Lord to do that work through us. And the truth is, whether you are in a bad time, like the servant girl, or in not so bad a time, Elisha, God can use you either way, whether our present circumstances are good or bad. God can use you to do world-changing, eternal work, no matter where you are or what present circumstances you find yourself in. You may feel insignificant or pushed aside this morning. None of that matters when we're talking about what God can do. Commentator Max Anders points out, the girl in this story was everything Naaman wasn't. He was powerful. She was powerless. He was free. She was a slave. He was a conquering Aramean. She was a despised Hebrew. She had nothing. He had everything. Which one was the hero? Which one had the power of God? She did because of the word of God and the love of God operating in her heart. Or look at Elisha. Suddenly one day he's presented with the pressure of a seemingly hopeless situation. He can't heal anybody from leprosy. He knows that. And yet his trust in God's ability did not flag. He didn't quake in fear. Both of these servants of God showed grace and compassion and kindness as they spoke the truth. They set aside resentment and prejudice and doubt. And as a result, something historic happened. More importantly, because of it, you and I are gonna get to meet Naaman one day in heaven and let him tell the story himself. And that's gonna be great. But that kind of work requires a willingness on our part to set our minds on things above, not on our earthly circumstances, to choose to love our enemies, to remember that this is the work God does and it is his delight to do it through us. That your conversations, your prayers, your acts of compassion, your interactions with the people around you that, are, that, that God has brought into your path, those things are not wasted and they are not insignificant. In fact, they just may be the last phrase that helps bring a person into the kingdom for the first time. You and I are part of God's labor and delivery team and what a great work it is. Let's pray.